Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. First, we're going to hear from J. Scott Miller about what stars and planets we can see in the night sky this month. Take it away, Scott. Scott here. March brings on thoughts of spring, officially starting soon. Astronomically, the first day of spring in the northern hemisphere is defined as that moment when the sun appears to be exactly over the equator. That moment this year is on March 20th at 5.27 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Of course, this also means that the sun rises directly in the east and sets directly in the west, giving us about 12 hours of darkness and 12 hours of daylight at this time. This might be good for folks who need that extra amount of daylight, but if I want to go outside to view the night sky, it pushes that back a bit, and as we move towards summer, that means even later evening starts to view the wonders of the night sky. Headed outside about 7.30 in the evening in early March, a red-colored point of light catches my eye high up in the western sky. It is the planet Mars. Mars continues to get dimmer in our evening skies because, one, it is smaller than we are, two, it is farther from the sun than we are, and three, we have moved ahead of it in our faster orbit around the sun. This means we are increasing the distance between us and Mars. The farther one is from a light source, the dimmer it seems to become, and Mars is illustrating this for us. The moon will move up from the western horizon from around the 15th on, lying just east of Mars on the 19th, which should make for an interesting pairing to see. Mars will linger in our western sky, continuing to fade and setting sooner and sooner after sunset well into May. By the end of May, with darkness falling so late in the evening, it will be all but gone in the evening skies. Mars is making the news of late because spacecraft from multiple countries are now visiting Mars. There is an orbiter provided by the United Arab Emirate, a Chinese craft which will include an orbiter, a lander, and a rover, and of course Perseverance, the latest rover provided by NASA. Early image returns from the location of Mars where Perseverance landed show the starkness, the desert-like appearance of the surface of Mars, quite reminiscent of those images from other landers and rovers sent to the surface of that planet. Once Perseverance begins the roving portion of its mission, we will be learning quite a bit more about the red planet. With darkness coming on, more stars begin to appear. As I am facing west to watch Mars, I might as well look to see what constellations I can find there. Most notable because the stars that make them up are relatively bright and the figures seem to reflect their namesakes are the constellations Taurus the Bull and Orion the Hunter. And Mars finds itself among the stars of Taurus, so I begin first to put that constellation together in the sky. Taurus is most easily marked by the V-shaped cluster of stars called the Hyades. It now looks like a right-side-up V and marks the face of Taurus. Aldebaran, the bright reddish-hued star, marks the end of one arm of the V. Though it would seem to be part of the cluster, it is about half the distance between us and that cluster. Almost gives one a 3D aspect to the night sky. If I extend the arms of the V upward a bit, two more relatively bright stars are seen marking the tips of the horns of Taurus. To the right of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. This group appears to be tighter than the Hyades, and with good reason. 
they are even farther away from us, further adding to that 3D aspect of the nighttime sky. Mars separates these two clusters. To the left of Taurus, more around to the south in the early evening sky, is Orion the Hunter. The three stars marking a belt around his waist first catch the eyes. Two bright stars above mark his shoulder, two below his knees. A line of faint stars just below the belt marks a sword tucked there. The shoulder star that is left of the two is Betelgeuse. The one that marks his right shoulder is called Bellatrex. Midway between these two, one can see a patch of three stars marking a triangle. This would mark the head of Orion. Below the belt stars are Rigel, a bright bluish-white star marking his front knee, and the dimmer Saif marks his back knee, as Orion is pictured striding toward the direction of Taurus. The belt stars of Orion can be used to point westward toward Aldebaran in Taurus, but one can also extend that line eastward to point toward Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky for several reasons. First, it is relatively close to us at a distance of about 8.6 light years. Second, it is a star much hotter than the sun and thus more luminous. Sirius is about 25 times more luminous than the sun. Sirius is also about 70% larger than the sun in diameter giving it a much larger surface area from which to emit light compared to our sun. So putting a bigger, hotter star closer to us than any other star makes for Sirius catching our eyes. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, the big dog. With a bit of imagination, it is not too hard to put together the stars of Canis Major and see a dog. Just above Sirius is a triangle of stars all about the same brightness marking the head. Below Sirius are several stars that could be imagined to be the chest and front legs of the dog. Below and to the east of Sirius is a relatively bright star marking the end of its back, while stars below this second star could be the back legs of the dog. Beyond the second star, more down and to the east, would be stars marking a tail. It takes a bit of practice, but it can be done. In the eastern sky, some of those constellations traditionally considered springtime constellations begin to be found. Almost directly east and above the horizon is Leo the Lion. Leo is another constellation that, with a bit of imagination, can be seen for the figure it represents. One might look for a group of stars that looks like a backwards question mark or maybe a sickle. The bright star at the end of the handle of the sickle is Regulus. Regulus and the sickle mark the chest and head of the lion. Closer to the horizon is a right triangle-shaped group of stars. These mark the hindquarters of the lion. In most depictions, it is pictured as a lion reposed in the sky rather than walking, not too different from the male lion I've seen at the zoo on past visits. Finally, in the northeastern sky, one can spot the Big Dipper. At this time of the year, the dipper's handle points toward the northeastern horizon. It almost looks like it is used to do a balancing trick. The curve of the three stars marking the handle leads away from the horizon to the four stars marking the bowl of the Big Dipper. As I have said in past broadcasts, the pair of stars marking the front of the bowl of the dipper, those two farthest from the handle, are the pointer stars. A line from the lower one, closer to Leo, 
to the upper one and extended roughly five to six times the separation between the pointer stars reaches Polaris, the North Star. Ever steady, located at the same angle above the horizon all night and all year, it provides one with the direction north, and by extension, the other directions along the horizon. Something predictable in what seems to be an ever unpredictable world, somewhat calming, as I now go back inside after a brief tour of the night skies of March. Well, that was Professor J. Scott Miller, astronomer extraordinaire. Next, Kentucky politics. Last week, we featured a panel discussion about environmental bills being discussed by the Kentucky legislature this year. Well, we're going to continue that conversation today. This discussion is co-sponsored by the Kentucky Academy of Science with Trent Garrison presiding and the Kentuckians for Science Education, where Kaylin Glover is president. Then there's the two environmental legislative experts we had on last week. There's Lane Boldman, executive director of the Kentucky Conservation Committee, and Randy Strobo, also of the KCC. Plus, there's a new voice in this week's discussion. It's Tom Fitzgerald, director of the Kentucky Resources Council. Now, the Kentucky Resources Council has a long and well-respected history of advocating for Kentucky's environment. Let's get on with this panel discussion. It starts with Tom Fitzgerald. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. I'm director of the Kentucky Resources Council. We do legislative advocacy. Mostly the work that we do is defensive in nature. Occasionally we'll be asked to write a good bill, but most of the work that we do is to try to prevent damage from occurring. KCC has always carried the affirmative work that the conservation community has done. And lately, we've all been doing a lot of defensive lobbying, trying to stop the weakening or the underfunding of different initiatives. So happy to be here, pleased as can be to have the science community engaged in these matters, because so much of the discussion, unfortunately, is about anecdotes and about feelings and not about data and not about sound scientific principles. So to the extent that the community is engaging in informing the debate, we all are the better for that. So let me start with uh, 207. A couple of cities have imposed requirements, typically through their building code, that new construction be all electric. And they've done that because they're trying to lighten their carbon footprint, and they've realized that even though the electricity may be generated by gas, that utilizing all electric is lower in terms of its carbon footprint than using gas for heating, space heating, or gas for. And what this is an effort to, uh, under the guise of we need all fuels, to have all gas all the time. What's really funny is the folks that are pushing it is the gas industry, right? But they've got a, a uh, AstroTurf group uh, called the Consumer Energy something or another, which is funded oh, by the fossil fuel companies, and periodically shows up and says, we're representing the consumers. They've been called out before because they're funded by the who's who of the fossil fuel industry under the guise of being consumer protections. When you have them there, you know, almost by definition, this bill is not a good bill. 
you know, it's it is inartfully drafted. It's overbroad, and it it is uh, attempting under the guise of discrimination to favor certain fuels over other fuels. The other bill, uh, three eighty six, could be called the Westlake Vinyls Mixing Zone Bill. It's it, it is a classic example of how you can draft really bad legislation to try to fix a problem that only affects one water discharger in the Commonwealth. Admittedly, Westlake Vinyls is a major employer in the area. I don't want to minimize the economic impact they have on the area. But basically what it would do is to say that you, cabinet, if you need to continue to allow any mixing zones that were in effect in 2003 that allowed bioaccumulative chemicals of concern to use mixing zones in order to meet the water quality standards for the the receiving river or stream. We're talking about rivers in this case. And and it, it is a major step backwards and is actually has some provisions in it that ironically will require a bunch of other dischargers to tighten their standards. I've been in conversation and negotiations in trying to find a non-legislative solution that will give the company a path forward similar to what Orsanko did saying that if you need to demonstrate that you need a mixing zone to meet the standards for a bioaccumulative chemical concern, you got to show that you've done everything possible to meet the standards. You have to continue to review the technology in order to demonstrate that. You're going to have to do a mass balance analysis to show that you're not going to have any acute toxic impacts and you need to do some other things. And then you will be allowed to continue to discharge for a five-year period, but then it's going to be re-reviewed. No, I was just going to make a comment on HB 207, the fuel switching bill. It's just interesting when you look at the evolution of, you know, the messaging on energy. I mean, uh, in Kentucky forever, it was coal 24-7. We can't have anything that's a threat to coal. Now it's, you know, gas. We can't have anything that's a threat to gas. But, you know, gas prices can be volatile, and that's what we saw in Texas recently. But the argument they were using on this bill was uh, we need an all of the above strategy so that, you know, we're not favoring one fuel over another. But, but like Fitz says, that's actually what this does. And it is ironic because we were all coal all the time for about 30 years. Yep. Caitlin, did you have a question? Yeah, I was going to ask what you wish that the public understood about this dynamic between you know, the companies that are trying to put in these laws and the consumers that are actually affected by them? Well, I I think what people need to understand is that the level of understanding of the committee members that are considering and passing these bills is pretty shallow for the most part. You got an occasional legislator who's down in the weeds and understands this stuff. But most of what people understand when the, the legislators understand is a particular legislator says, this is important to my district. It means a lot of jobs. And my company just wants regulatory certainty and never feel sorry to reach out to your legislator to say, I'm concerned about this. What information can you send me? Um, because they're there for you. You put them in an office and they say they're only by your graces. I'm talking about HB 386, the mixing zone bill, uh, another fundamental legal issue behind it is when does the legislature, when should they delegate the authority to make these decisions to the cabinet and when should they keep it themselves? And just like Fitch just said, there are some pretty bright legislators, but I can guarantee you, just like Fitch said, most of them have no idea 
what that bill means or how it works and what the implications of that bill would be. Fitz identified a pretty serious, you know, side effect of the bill, which means it's going to impact, you know, 30 or so other permit holders, how they deal with those chemicals. So, you know, it's a fundamental decision of the legislature. Do we have the expertise to really know what we're doing with this bill? Or should we let the experts, you know, in the cabinet deal with it? And right now they're trying to say that, you know, we, well, we want to control that and they want to control it without knowing what the bill actually does. And that's, that's a problem. And that's a problem with uh, legislators, not just Kentucky, but all over the country and federal government. Yeah. And the important thing for the public to understand too is, is the whole transparency issue. And, and it'd be great if the public was holding their lawmakers more accountable to that. And this session is a really good example not only are the lawmakers having very little time to digest these bills, but there's a lag time from when they get posted in any way that the public can actually see them. So that's why it's important to check KRC's list, KCC's list on a regular basis. But even we have very, very little time to review these bills, get them up online, get the word out to the public. And as soon as you see something that bothers you, just call us up and we can give you the details we have. But, but then call your lawmakers and tell them, hey, you know, this isn't a transparent process. It's unfair. I have people that have an interest and I need you to take more time to listen to me. That, that brings up a, a question that I have. So Kentucky Academy of Science has a, a large membership all across Kentucky from undergraduate students to just people interested in science to graduate students to academics to people in industry, you know, 4,300 members or something like that. We have a speakers bureau, kind of like an experts bureau of, I don't know, 300 and something people that we don't utilize as much as we should. How does an organization like Kentucky Academy of Science or Kentuckians for Science Education fit into to this process? That, no, that's a good question. I mean, it, and there are other people out there that actually tried to get in to testify on some of these bills, HB 272, the water bill. Uh, there's a water network out in Eastern Kentucky that uh, has been working on this issue. They made requests to testify and, they, and nobody answered them. So that's very frustrating. You know, they're, they're used to calling Fitz. Fitz is always available. And that's a relationship that's taking place over many, many years, but it's harder for other people to get in sometimes. One thing to do is, is you have your members reach out to their legislators. Everybody's got a state rep, everybody's got a senator. Reach out, have them introduce themselves. Best time to do it is during the interim because now things are a little bit crazy. Say, hi, I'm so-and-so. Just want to let you know, I'm trained in this and such. I'm part of a network that has extensive scientific background. If you've got questions, please, reach out to us. Let us help inform. If you've got bills that you're interested in or bills that you're concerned about, please reach out to us. Also, wanted to let you know that there will be times when I will be reaching out to you and would like the ability to speak on some bills that are of concern. And I would appreciate if when I, when I contact you, if you would let the sponsor know and you would let the committee chair know that I would like to speak on these bills. And doing op-eds on bills of concern or doing op-eds on issues generally, we believe that as these issues are being looked at, there should be better involvement of the scientific community. And we stand ready to help inform these debates. For example, several years back, Chairman Gooch decided he wanted to bring in a climate denier. He had to go to the third viscount of so-and-so, Lord Moncton, 
<laughs> who reminds me of that drunken character on West Wing who plays the British ambassador. And this guy, you know, believed that everybody who has AIDS should be put on a, a separate island and had all sorts of other really brilliant ideas. But they had to go out and reach out to him to find somebody who could make the argument about climate denial. Keith Mountain should have called him and said, hey, I'm a climate researcher here at the University of Louisville. I'd like to speak on the issue. And, and in terms of getting the possibility of being able to testify on things, reach out to the chair of the House and the Senate committees. Say, hi, want to let you know we're here. Want to let you know we have a speaker's bureau. If you want somebody to come speak during the interim on issues, happy to do it. Want to let you know that we are interested in what's going on in the legislature and want to make sure that the voice of the scientific community, which is not otherwise being heard, gets heard. So just want to let you know we'll be reaching out and would, would, would like to have some time. I think at the time how we view legislators as as un, untouchable, uncommunicating, but that's, that's not the case necessarily. They have their own ideology, but usually the issue is trying to sort through the information they're getting. And so the way to convince them is they have to trust you as a person. They have to know right. you. You have to be a reliable person who's not just going to go like spam them with, with phone calls whenever you don't like something. Right. Um, it's about a relationship. And I think we overlook that. And I think as scientists, we are really bad sometimes at relationships because we think that the numbers should speak for themselves. But we aren't completely immune to bias and to, I mean, like we like to think we are, but we're not. We train ourselves to, but okay. it takes effort. Oh, I forgot who said it, but a scientist speaking about a non-scientific topic is just as stupid as everyone else. Like we have to keep ourselves in check. We are people and they are people too. And if we want to help them understand the things that we've dedicated our lives to understanding, they have to trust us first. That's why it's good as Fitz said to just have a conversation with them because you can learn a lot just by listening to what's on their minds and you can tell right away what they're probably not getting the best information on, and then that helps you prepare for your follow-up conversation with them. If you go to their website, you will find out where they went to school, what they do for a living, and, and some other information about them, right? You'll find that there is so much more that unites us than really divides us. And, and as you said, and I thought it was a very good point, the folks in the legislature, I'd say 90% or more, are there because they want to do what they think is the right thing. They come at things with their own worldview, built of their own experiences and their own biases and their own background. And it is hard sometimes to, to get through that bias, but it's not impossible. And, and the conversations are what are important. What was really funny is today, uh, the Senate passed a bill to encourage Kentucky to go big on creating incentives for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency mining. I guarantee you that not more than three people in that chamber understand what cryptocurrency mining is. <laughs> it was, you know, it's an incredibly energy intensive thing. And we had a couple of legislators say, yeah, my kid was involved in that, you know, and like, this is the wave of the future. And, and, you know, and blockchain technology, you could almost hear some of the legislators going, 
blockchains. Yeah, I had to use that to get my car out of the mud that time. Um, oh, no, that's a block end chain. Never mind. But it was just really funny because you could see that, you know, a goodly number of folks in the chamber are going, huh? What? You know, and just it was so it was really interesting. And and on something like that that comes up that has this, you know, has some scientific ramifications. Um, it's important that somebody be out there to be an honest broker for information. And if you deal in hyperbole, you're not going to last very long as a source of information. And that's why I think the scientific community, which is always very humble about hedging what is known and what is not known and has, although there is bias, there is a method that tries to minimize that. I think that that's important, particularly in an era where bias and emotion and anecdote is all too often governing over data and facts. And in the case of the blockchain bill, I mean, the ramifications are huge, right? It's a huge energy sink. It's, there's several bills related to this that are giving tax breaks, tax credits. You know, this is real money to the people, and we want to make sure it's well invested. And people just have a very top-level understanding of what this even is. I remember two years ago when the topic first came up, uh, Reggie Thomas came up to me and said, well, you know, computers, can you tell me about this blockchain stuff? (laughs) Well, you know, be good to go consult a deeper expert on that to truly understand what it is that you're getting involved in. Can we address Senate Bill 266? That's the one that prevents solar installation on agricultural lands. I don't see that one moving. Do you, Fitz or Randy? No, I, I don't see it moving. Uh, the fact that it wasn't filed by uh, Ralph Alvarado is, is speaks volumes because he represents most of Clark County. Basically what happened is the solo developer came in, was negotiating for about nine months with the county officials and didn't bother to tell the public. What happened is early on, uh, I was working with the Clark Coalition, which is the group that opposes it. Basically, what everybody was saying is we don't necessarily oppose solar. We're just pissed off about the way the process unfolded. So they've now backed up and they're looking at creating rules of the road. In the meantime, we realized that there are about 20 other installations that were then on the board that are solar scale installations that are coming to Kentucky because we've got the sun and we've got access to the interstate grids. So we've got a number of companies that have done really good engagement with the public. They've reached out to different organizations. They've reached out to local governments that have done it right. And they're not seeing the same sort of pushback. It was just an unfortunate situation. And we just want to make sure that doesn't set the tone for what the majority of people think. There are a lot of farmers that are really interested in this. There's a lot of representatives that have these developments coming up in their districts. And as long as people have an elevated, healthy, transparent conversation, I think all the concerns can be heard and all the issues can be addressed. Absolutely. As far as the HB 559 that requires the Energy Environment Cabinet to set PFAS chemical limits, Yeah, it's not going to happen. But, you know, anytime you can bring attention to the issue, EPA will be coming out with standards uh, before this administration is done. But it's it's good that people understand the issue. And that's a great one for you all to raise some understanding about not only PFAS, but also the body burden that we all have in our adipose tissue of some of these ubiquitous chemicals that... uh, uh, persist in the atmosphere, uh, persist in the environment, in our food, in our water, such as PCBs, dioxins, furans. 
House Bill 207, the utilities preemption bill, and House Bill 386, the mixing zone bioaccumulation. It's, it sounds like both of your organizations are against those, but you've been but you've been communicating with the sponsors. Yeah. Oh yeah. You always yep. want to communicate with the sponsors. If you're if you're going to oppose a bill, they need to be the first one to know that you oppose a bill. It's, right. Because it, it's toxic for them to find out that you've been talking about their bill without talking to them. Okay, good point. Advanced recycling, HB 345. The cabinet has major concerns that, but this would potentially cause us to lose primacy for our waste management program. And so it's really a bill that we think is unnecessary and the cabinet has real concerns with. That was Tom Fitzgerald of the Kentucky Resources Council. You also heard from Lane Boldman and Randy Strobo of the Kentucky Conservation Committee. And you heard from the representatives of the two organizers of this event, Trent Garrison of the Kentucky Academy of Science and Kaylin Glover of Kentuckians for Science Education. We'll put links to all of these organizations on both our SoundCloud and Facebook pages. In the meantime, we got to go. You've been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. Thanks a lot.